being a PhD student drives you to drink a lot of coffee (laughs) (laughs) because you have to be up, um, you know, focused on for long periods of time writing and long periods of time um, just thinking about your research and, and, and so on. So, Hello there. My name is Kit Rackley. My pronouns are they, them, and this is Coffee and Geography. The aim of the show is to get to know, explore and celebrate the diverse and intersectional range of people on this rock we call home and their love and passions of it. We'll find out why guests identify as geographers and if they don't exactly, we'll have fun exploring all the myriad of ways that connects their life to geography. So, pour your favourite brew, get cosy and listen in. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPot. Off we go. Hi everybody, welcome to Coffee and Geography and I am joined by a wonderful guest and I'm going to say hi to Dr. Keston Perry. Hello, Hello. welcome. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. And you've been you've had such a busy day today, so I really do appreciate you sparing the time. Um, you had a, you had an unexpected presentation to give or something like that, but how did it go? Um, it was... It's a meeting that um that was planned in advance, but I had not anticipated that it would go for the length of time it went, and um I had some information that I needed to to give, so um yeah, that's what took up my time today, and I have a a talk to give this afternoon and so on, so yeah. Well, I'm hoping this will be a nice little break for you and then uh, we'll leave you with enough time to get to your talk this afternoon. So to introduce you, so Keston is a political economist and interdisciplinary scholar interested in Afro-Caribbean economic thought, global finance and climate justice. He is currently a lecturer in economics at the University of West England and previously was a postdoctoral scholar at Tufts University. And he has published work on industrial policy, climate finance and decarbonisation, financialization in resource wealthy countries. Wow, that sounds pretty amazing. Is there any particular aspect of that which you kind of think, I like that bit a little bit more than that, or is it, is it just all good to you? Uh, so I think uh, my, my, I, I suppose my interest over time has really um, evolved and changed um, in part my personality is I can't stick on one thing uh, for a very long time. And so I have to sort of find ways to continue stimulating myself intellectually, but also it has to be something that also is, is my passion. So my interest in, in work with respect to um, it's all linked. It's, it sounds as though it's a sort of disparate set of um activity but it's definitely all linked so i i've come to this from the perspective of understanding uh a country a resource-based country in the caribbean region trinidad and tobago and understanding of how its history of development is impacted by you know colonialism external uh influences like you know international organizations and so on and sort of more recent stuff is linked to how poorer, um, underdeveloped countries such as Haiti has been within within the current sort of context, how it has been affected by international institutions, how it's affected by sort of uh, a changing climate and, and how those forces impact on the country's ability to address those problems, right? And, and really as one of the countries that's most vulnerable to climate change. So so that's where, you know, my interests on finance and so on and connect with um, understanding mitigation, climate mitigation and understanding impacts in, in, in countries in, in, in the global south. Yeah, and a, word, a name that come, you might know this person because 
he works in a similar field to you, but there's someone who's been very active in the geography teacher community called um, Dr. Leon Seeley, who does a lot of this work and did a talk at the Geographical Association conference, um, which was absolutely amazing. And I'm also part of a decolonizing geography group. And you're right, there's so much of these intersectional things that we talk about in that group. Um, and the group is is saturated with such brilliant discussion but there's so many different facets and so many different ways that you can come across this. And I'm really, really uh, keen to ensure that us and we, we can all communicate these kind of issues to young students, you know, in, in high school. So I think it's very, very exceptional important work that, that you do. We'll come back to that in a bit more detail because there's a couple of bits there which I really want to discuss with you. Uh, although I don't want you to talk, talk shop too much, but you talk about your passions, <laughs> how you so wish. So we're mapping our... Um, beverages to demonstrate just one example of interconnectivity around the world, but also as a resource to allow teachers to help students explore and critically appraise claims to sustainability and ethical practices. So what do you usually like to drink, Keston? What, what brew do you usually have in front of you? Well, actually, today I've been drinking coffee. Um, I've been drinking a mocha. I don't know. I, I love chocolate and I love coffee. And so, well, it's interesting because I think my love for it has happened, has come about here in the UK, uh, in part because being a PhD student drives you to drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> because you have to be up, um, you know, focused on for long periods of time writing and long periods of time um, just thinking about your research and 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 so on so um yeah that's how my my you know my you know my my feel for coffee has has come about uh, you know it, i was not a coffee drinker um <laughs> four or five years ago right uh so it's it's cool <laughs> is, is there a particular brand you gravitate to or do you just pick up anything off the shelf uh so i mean in not to promote any brand but i do like costa coffee um i you know it it's really cool so i i drink both their sort of their canned coffee but i, I also drink um what they often in this, as a you know hot drink uh and in terms of brand these are things that really slip me apart from the Costa. There's one that I buy at the supermarket that my friend introduced me to. And I cannot remember for the life of me. I can't remember the brand right now, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're, we're, we're not here to promote brands. In fact, what we're doing, we want to name the brands and everything because when we map these onto our interactive map, we want the students to do some inquiry work and challenge their claims to sustainability and their ethical practice practices. So by mentioning Costa, yes, we know that there are other outlets available. <laughs> uh, by mentioning Costa, then the students will say, right, okay, that was mentioned on the podcast. Let's go and see if they really do stick to their sustainability and ethical claims and and you know and all that intersectional stuff, not just working practices, but how they use water and resources in the local area and things like that. So yeah, thank you for that. And students. Costa, how sustainable are they? Go and have a look. I so, think I, if we if if we're talking about coffee as well, we also have to think perhaps about how these brands are sometimes connected to sort of larger um, practices of uh, exploitation sometimes in the global south. So where do they where do they source their coffee? How do they source them? And also thinking about sort of wider impacts on inequality as opposed to I, I like to think about climate change if we're linking this to climate change and sustainability uh, as opposed to individual choices I like to think about them in terms of wider accumulating impacts of corporations of governments of you know, those large scale entities that have a, a huge impact on um, our environment, but also have a huge impact on geographies beyond, you know, the immediate, beyond, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the shops or the, the, the coffee shop and, the, on you know, that we see 
on our daily commute or whatever, they have very wide impacts because of globalization, because of of um, longer histories of, of colonialism and, and extractive activities. So we, you know, we definitely need to think about it, as you say, in a much more um, larger, larger scale than we, we normally do. Absolutely. And when, when geography teachers talk about this kind of stuff, one thing they get the students to understand is this whole chain right from the primary producer all the way through to not just the consumer, but post-consumer as well. So like the waste and everything. And every single link in the chain has got its own issues. It's got its own challenges to sustainability. It's got its own links to colonialism, every single step of the way. And so it's, it's, yeah, there's the nuance is amazing. The intersection is amazing. And, um, but which is why I feel that the whole decolonizing process of the curriculum right now is so, so important because it runs so deep that it needs to be untangled because we go through our consumerist capitalist life without thinking about these things and how they have real tangible impacts on people around the world. So yeah, definitely. I love that link I, you made. <laughs> no, you're right. Um, you know, there are certainly you know as his geographies and 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 if we think about geographies and how colonialism has um impacted spaces and peoples and and communities beyond our immediate environment we have to think in terms of a historical sense but we also have to think in a contemporary sense how are those things uh newly being reformulated how they're being uh, manifested in new ways, sometimes disguised uh, as well as, you know, ethical, right, practices. They're sometimes disguised as fair trading and, and all these kinds of things, but often continuing a very long pattern of, of um, uh, exploitation, continuing a, a longer pattern of, of, of extraction to some degree. And, and those things impact on uh the life chances of people um outside of our immediate environment and impact on communities that we sometimes can't see we you know see them in in various forms through uh through the media and they're depicted often as hapless beings and without agency in some ways but often we don't make the connection as i was talking today actually in the earlier meeting how you know, how do entities like the Queen of England, entities um, like, you know, European states and governments, how did they become wealthy, right? It has, you know, it is all linked to the transnational activity, all linked to how corporations receive support from, you know, these governments and states and, and you know, that kind of colonial process that happened um, and is happening. It hasn't, in my view, ended. And there wasn't, you know, there isn't a truncation to say it's ended and now it's a new period. It's often lingering effects that, that we feel even today. Yeah, and one of the things that was fascinating when I was teaching about globalization and fair trade and, and free trade, I didn't realize to the extent that where fair trade you know, theoretically is a really good system, paying the primary producers, more stuff like that. The more I dug into it, I realised that actually ones which are managed right poorly undercut local markets. They undercut the, uh, you know, the the people who work in a local area to the point where they could be priced out of things. And so there's a local economy is completely geared up to benefit the Western societies and the consumers in the Western societies. So, as geographers, we've got a respons- responsibility to help the children to critically appraise things like the fair trade program and whatnot, and to say, is to what extent is it a good alternative, or should it be better, and how can it be better? So, I think that's, and you're right, it's it's a very very slow burner, isn't it? It's not happening overnight, and we've got so much historical context to unpick and on 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 that, and that which is why the work that that you do in particular is exceptionally important. I'm very, very happy to share it with people listening. So we'll go back to, in fact, where you are in London is one of the epicenters of this process, isn't it? Of the globalization and, you know, colonial 
because you're near the London Docklands in place though, aren't you? So, because um, that's roughly where my parent, my dad comes from. He's from the East End of London himself. And my, my granddad used to work in the docks a few times. Um, and of course, you've got all the redevelopment that's taken place, which has not necessarily benefited the local people to the best. So what I would like to ask you, Kesten, is um, you said you're from the Trinidad and Tobago. So how much of that identity is still with you? And how much has the east of London kind of like crept into your identity, maybe shaped your identity a bit? I mean, you already mentioned in a kind of fun way that it's kind of made you drink coffee <laughs> because of your friends and stuff. So how much of your um, identity from the, the, the Lesser Antilles is still with you? And how much of it has it been shaped by being in London? It's it's interesting. So I think um so my 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 I guess my coming to East London has happened through being in various locations in in London as well, right? As as a student, I was I was living um at the beginning in Bow um when I first moved here and uh, to London, that is, and I moved to Forest Gate, and then I moved to where I am now, um, in near to Canning Town. So, I suppose my I suppose my my experience as an immigrant uh, or or someone seeking uh, opportunities, but also trying to understand how my own experiences as a person a black person a uh, um person of 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 you know experiencing um london from i suppose before brexit happened and then you know you know post brexit i it has been a very, I should say, somewhat a, a a difficult experience because it has meant my identities as an immigrant has also come to the fore, right? Actually, after I finished my PhD, uh, trying to get a job in, in the UK was um, impeded by those kinds of Brexit activities and, and the fact that jobs were actually being advertised only to nationals um to british nationals or to to european nationals and i moved here actually as a result of not being able to find a job in the first instance and <laughs> my friends living with friends at a point right, in yeah. time um up until recently actually um in 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 near to to um to Canning Town in part because I couldn't find I couldn't find that job and sort of making the way through those challenges have influenced how to some degree I interact or engage but I also disengage I'm I'm disengaged to some degree on I understand one to in one to one extent that Newham for instance is the poorest borough in in London and one of the you know the most um, impoverished across the UK, and what that has meant is there. There's a history of immigration to East London. Um, when when friends have told me um, what East London, because because my friend's aunt, for instance, has have lived has lived here since the 1980s, and the kind of development that has that happened after the Olympics, where train lines were extended and so on. There were, you know, these places were cut off from from certain parts of um, the UK or, or parts of London, and those kinds of developments and kinds of what we're seeing now in terms of gentrification, um, where we have very expensive um, apartment buildings and flats and so on being being built, and that has meant resources. Um, you know, putting putting, uh, you know, an underinvestment in the community and an underinvestment or divestment from from community um, activities and 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 community cohesion to sort of real estate and property 
uh, investment and, and poverty relations. And, and you know, in, in one sense, you can see that very, you can see it physically where you have these very expensive high-end buildings and apartments and flats existing alongside um, houses that have been here very for a long time that are, and, and you know, communities that have very been, you know, very much underinvested. In part, that has to do with race and that has to do with geography and it has to do with um, colonialism, like, you know, communities here, it's a very... Um, there are large portions of, of um, Asian, South Asian communities in East London uh, that has um, manifested into the kinds of food you can see and experience in, in East London, but also the kinds of problems you see. At one point, Newham had a very high rates of COVID, right? And that is obviously inter- interacts with... Um, you know, the impoverishment and underinvestment. And, and because health services on the one end um, have been, and resources have been taken out of the community um, where, and property developers have come in and tried to make their own enclaves. So we have, you know, now some gated areas in, 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 in East London um, as a result of those kinds of dynamics, which are, which are really complex, um, but all intersect in, in very, very interesting ways. Yeah, this is something we could talk about for for ages. I um, mean, you mentioned <laughs> you, yeah, well, you mentioned you first moved to Bow. That's, my dad was born within the Bells, yeah. St. Mary Lee Bow, so from Mile End and that area in Stepney. Um, my first, ex- I mean, I used to go into London quite a lot, but in terms of education, my first experience of that part of the world was going to brick lane you you mentioned all you know that area as as a sixth form student i i loved it and i loved going around and walking around and seeing all the cultural diversity there and and i just had that sense even at a young age about how enriching that was all and you were mentioned about the difficulties that you've been facing which is it's so it's self self-defeating for a country like united kingdom because the the things that people like yourself and other immigrants have brought to this country in terms of their expertise, you know, their their cultural diversity, just the colour and the life it brings to this country is one of the best things that was about this country, in my opinion. Um, and to feel that we're going backwards, all that is a really big shame and quite quite upsetting, in my opinion. Part of of I mean, my experience also you know, it, it dovetails into my work, right? The reason I'm interested in things of around um, how climate change impacts um, lower income communities in the global south, um, how colonialism is is interrelated with those kinds of, of impacts. All of, I think, my experience really uh, is reflected in part in, in, in what I'm interested in and, and sort of questions that I ask in my research um, and also the kinds of observations I make um, about communities like um, like East, in East London, uh, because, I mean, I think it was Stuart Hall who said that we are here because you were there. <laughs> and yep. so the, the history of, of colonialism is not one that is, has ended, but it has created all forms of different kinds of of um migration patterns and changes and and um you know ways of knowing and being you know so what what we've what has happened in my view um is and I don't know if this was something prior to before I came here physically um but we've become as people we've become very enclosed in ourselves um and and london ha- has that kind of feel i remember i was living in the north before so in in newcastle and then the first time i took a train down to london this was in 2012 i realized it's just it was a different pace of life and there was a different um way that people um navigated the environment and navigated um london you know, in a very kind of impersonal way. Um, and how people, what I experienced in Newcastle was 
just a very different kind of community vibe and spirit. Um, it was just, it was, yeah, it was very different. So it, 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 I suppose my story ties into how these geographies become um, heterogeneous, if if we want to use that word, and how these geographies are are not isolated, um, but are materially connected to each other, uh, because we we can't understand what we are today, how you know these kinds of phenomena, you know that we call modern, like new flats and new properties and new. Uh, forms of gentrification, all those things happen um, because of certain sort of historical patterns. Um, so, yeah. And I really have been annoyed by this whole thing from the top down about, uh, you know, you, we shouldn't be teaching our students about things like white privilege because you're going to make them feel guilt trip and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, it's not about that. It's about teaching our true history and our true past and, and what impact that has had throughout history back then, but how it's played and manifested into the history of today. Um, I was living in San Francisco for a little bit and saw the kind of things that you've been talking about with the communities there. So, uh, when I was, so when I was working out there, I worked at a place called the Exploratorium, which was a, a wonderful science museum, but they do a lot of community work as well. And for one of their talks, they had some uh, a group in called uh, Shore Up Marin. And Marin is a district in the San Francisco Bay Area. And what's happening is that every time there's a king tide, obviously the water around the bay rises and it floods the Marin area out. And as you would guess, you would, you would be able to guess this from your work, guess who lives in those areas? The poor people communities of color, people have been more or less marshaled into those areas because they are the cheapest places that they can afford and, and there's been no investment for the people, not just gentrification. And the authorities won't touch it because they know it's a flood risk area and it will cost too much money to deal with all that kind of stuff. So, of course, those people are left in that um, social and environmental poverty. And... And talking to the people, but they are, they are so passionate. They are very galvanized, um, but they cannot do it without allyship. They need the people with the money, with the privileges, with the, the means to support them, you know, to be able to live safely in a place that they've been effectively forced to live in because of social circumstances. So, I mean, yeah, there are those... Um... You know, those things, poverty and wealth exist alongside each other, right? So, the, and I always think about these things as relational. We can't have wealth without poverty on, on, the, one, on the one hand, we, you know, and, and on the next. So it has to, you know, when we think about these things, it, it has to, and this is what I try to bring in to um, my own work on climate justice, the patterns of historical uh, dispossession and how which communities are affected by climate change uh, the most or disproportionately are the ones that have been um, historically affected to a very great extent by, by colonialism. So one of the countries I'm, I'm particularly interested in is, is Haiti. Um, as a society, it is at, at one time it was for France the most lucrative colony um, that France had owned. If you look at in terms of the size of the country, it, it is not that 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 large. Um, and now today, it it only has it has about about one about ten million people inhabitants. Um, and at that time, you know. France and and was gaining its wealth because of during the colonial times that is was gaining its wealth because of the plantations it had in Haiti. How I make that connection to current climate changes is the fact that the kinds of patterns of extractive um, agriculture, the kinds of um, environmental practices that were that were um, 
put into place during colonialism meant that communities, in order to get things like income and and, and sources of, 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 of energy, meant that communities in Haiti had to um, engage in certain kinds of um, deforestation, engage in environmental practices um, that were colonial practices at the very beginning. And over time, we know that climate change is an, a phenomenon that has that historically is is hundreds of years in the making, right? So we have to link how that col- colonialism happened to why these countries are more, are very exposed and 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 experience um, the kinds of devastation they experience now after one um, one environmental event or one catastrophe and it's because their topography their 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 land has been either um you know the the kinds of 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 environmental practices that indigenous communities were used to and uh, were accustomed to revitalizing the land have gone and that the colonial process truncated and and really um, transformed the land and transformed how um, communities were able to engage with land and, and, and their relationship to, to land and, and to the environment. That process completely transformed that, um, that kind of, 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 of relation, relationship and, and makes now those communities after um, Britain, France and, you know, colonial empires how colonial empires historically have you know contributed the most to climate change these these community these societies you know especially their wealthy elites contribute the most uh, you know greenhouse gases to the environment and now we see through frequency of storms, we see through frequency of um, hurricanes and um, landslides and, and in, you know, the kinds of rainfall that we, we see and droughts. So those kinds of, of consequences of climate change are happening more and the effects are being felt in those communities to, um, and those countries to a larger extent than in in Britain and in Europe, right? And so those it, it's 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 interesting that history has come full circle. Yeah. The colonial and enslavement that happened in those countries is now being is now kind of being felt through the new forms of dispossession and new forms of devastation those communities are feeling through climate change. So yeah, that that's how I think um I I try to I try to understand those kinds of of um phenomenon. Uh, there's one popular book um it was a bestseller it was by uh Tim Marshall about um prisoners of geography but there's been a lot of pushback on that book and I think you know warranted criticism about environmental determinism about how that has judge the course of development of certain nations around the world. But you have just painted a perfect picture of actually why are some of these countries prisoners of geography is because they were effectively, in many cases, they were placed in this prison by these colonial processes. As you said, Haiti was a a very resource-rich place, not just what they had in the land, but how they were managing the land and there's been lots of studies that have come out recently. Recently, surprise, surprise, indigenous populations are the best at maintaining the environment. What a surprise! Because of their, as you just said, because of their practices that they've been doing for thousands of years. And of course, colonialism's come and disrupted those, changed the environment, and then a lot of people have just taken the story from there. Oh, you're a prisoner of your geography. But um, so I think this is a really, really important thing that we no, need to investigate. It- it's definitely something that has happened through a social process. It hasn't happened because the environment is doing wicked things to us, right? <laughs> or these things have, um, 
you know, storms and 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 changes in 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 temperature patterns and 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 rainfall and precipitation um, are happening because out of nowhere, <laughs> you know, Seriously. those things are happening because of um, I I I like to think of it in because of a social process and socially socially produced process um, of extraction, colonialism, um, and so on as opposed to one that is environmentally determined yes, um, and only determined because your environment is fixed or your geography is fixed. It's definitely not, um, in my view, can it cannot be thought about in that way. It has to be thought through a sort of relational and social dimension of, 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 of um, these consequences because these things are linked consequences and causes um, are linked through a complex kind of um, interaction. Mm. So you are correct that that we can't see geographies as being fixed on the one hand and cannot see that the changes that have, environmental changes that have happened um, exist as a natural thing. It exists through kinds of social interventions um, that are made over time. Yeah, and... I know there'll be plenty of fans of Tim Minshaw and those that are like listening to this, but I just want everybody to think about this, right? Human populations before the age of industrialization through natural migration, everything, they seek out environments which they can thrive in, be sustainable in, and then their culture will develop in. So if you go back to the earliest of human history, humans would move around anyway to be in an environment which suits them. So if that's the case... What was the disruptive influence which has caused a group of people, a society, a culture to now be prisoners of their geography, to now be at detriment to the environment? There's got to be something that came along to have disrupted that process. And as we've been discussing, it's mostly been people who have come from outside that environment, come into disrupted their environment, causes all this this, um, disruption. And now, of course, as we say, we've got climate change, which is now, you said, bring it in full circle. Historic history is coming full circle. And now changing the environment again because of the actions of those who've had the power to change the atmosphere to the extent that they have. Yeah, uh, and, so and not to forget the also when they, when they came, <laughs> uh, they brought or they you know, imported slave labour. Um, enslaved peoples and Africans and, and later on indentured um, people from, from Asia and so on um, to, you know, to create the kinds of wealth that, that they wanted, right? Um, it, 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 you know, the labor aspect of it is very, very critical to understand how, um, you know, that, that whole process began and continued. Um, and and what what we're living through right now, the effects of those kinds of um, those changes and, and processes. Yeah. So, as I said, this is a topic which is so deep, so intersectional. We could go on about it, and I'm I'm hoping that colleagues of mine in the decolonizing geography group are, are listening to this because this is so fantastic. And we're gonna get we're gonna get you to give a shout out. And all your plugs in a minute, because if, if people, if you're happy for people to contact you and kind of help out with this, it would be it's fantastic. Because your website, for example, is a great resource. And then you've put lots of links in there to the stuff that you've been doing. I mean, I, I read earlier about the one that you wrote, uh, Between the Devil, the Depth and the Ble- Deep Blue Sea, Why the South Needs Reparations for the Climate Crisis. And you've, you've put a lot into that about the reasons for that is. And... Okay, I'm, I hopefully this doesn't come across as too reductionist or too crass, but I'm just thinking, I don't know if you can see behind me, Keston, but my living room floor is in absolute state because I've got a seven and a four-year-old, right? So what do we do? We teach them. We say you've got to clean up after your mess, be good to people, treat people how you want to be treated and all that kind of stuff. Nobody will have an argument against those kind of values, right? So at a national level... We need to do this, clean up after your mess, take responsibility for the actions that you have been taking in other people's lives, in other people's uh, space, treat how you treat others how you want to be treated, 
And so these are human values we all have and we teach to our children, even though there's Lego all over the floor at the moment. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's frustrating. It's such a slow burner. Yeah. No, you, you are correct. So this is something that is being um, discussed by, um, by leaders in the, and, and, and advocates in the sort of reparations movement, right? So led by people like um, Hillary Sir Hillary Beckles and Beckles, yeah. and the Caricom Reparations Commission group, um, who have basically detailed what has happened through British um, colonialism in the Caribbean region, and what has happened through um, that development process was basically truncated by what what they what they call native genocide so the, the you know decimation of indigenous populations and people and by colonialism right um and the african trans transatlantic and enslavement and what they're saying is that um you know the reparations movement is saying that you, you know britain and, and and european um powers created the mess that many of, of, of the Caribbean region and many Caribbean countries are in and left um, those countries without um, payment for um, the kinds of mess that they created. Without what, Instead, what they did is compensated slaveholders and enslavers like... Um, Edward Colton, um, who whose statue was pulled down in Bristol. Many people don't make those kinds of connections, yeah. or or don't, or what Britain has been has happened is created a mythology around how Britain became a great power, or how Britain um, uh, achieved the kinds of wealth that it did, and you know has created a mythology that. It was the British that abolished slavery because they thought it was <laughs> was um, an evil system, but it was not. It was not the case because Britain. It's interesting to know as well that Britain continued paying enslaved enslavers and slaveholders up to twenty fifteen. Yes, they did. Twenty fifteen, yeah. um, the Treasury, you know, back when um, and emancipation was um, proclaimed in the, the Caribbean and in the West Indies in 1834, a decision was made by the British state to pay compensation for loss of property and property being um, uh, both in terms of land and, and, and estates and, and plantation, but also humans, black, black people. Um, and enslaved people, right? So the loss of that property was, you know, given through compensation to to um, to slaveholders. So and and we we also had the recent story as late as December twenty twenty. We learned that the the MP, the, the member of parliament for Somerset South, um, his name escapes me right now, but he. One he f- he failed to declare as one of his assets a, a slave house um, estate in 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 the Barbados. So he still these people are still actually accumulating wealth as a result of that process. One thing I want to point out: it's not something um, that people should be. Um, it's some it's 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 understanding the contemporary manifestations of those things right it's understanding the effects of those things and are actually still going on um and what we need to do is not be necessarily um you know it shouldn't only cause us things like shame and embarrassment it should cause us to think critically about patterns that we see today and it should cause us to think what is due and what is just due to those communities that are have been affected by 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 those processes over a very long period of time um and how i link this to climate change is the fact of that 
those the colonial and um colonial process has created the kinds of environments very vulnerable and marginalized environments that community those um black communities in the caribbean now live in and are faced and have whenever there's a storm a tropical storm we're currently in the atlantic hurricane season the, the the types of storms and the types of um the frequency of those storms have become much much more um um it has become much more frequent but much more ferocious um you know the occurrence of those storms and it is of it is linked to um how we have uh treated people and how we have treated those environments for profit for personal and you know sort of wider benefits to to british states and so on so yeah we have to kind of definitely as you say clean up the mess um that we've created and the mess that people um who we think are so far gone and the histories are so so far spent um are, are not connected to our present environment that's not the case and and we definitely need to think about that Kirsten, we're, we're coming to the end of our time now. I know you're, you're busy and, and you've been so gracious with your time. So let's link you to some previous guests now. So we have this last thing we like to do on the podcast about, uh, which we call We Are All Geographers, and we try and challenge each other to link a word or a topic to geography. Now, last week, I spoke to uh, the punk biologist, Lucy Eckersley, and she had to come up with a link to language that was set to her by the guest beforehand. Now, when I asked Lucy what word she wanted to set you, she came up with the word art. She wasn't specific about what type of art, although she loves photography and, you know, painting and stuff like that. So you can approach this as loosely as you like, right? So in what way can you link things about the world, geography to art? And usually I time people on this for 30 seconds. So are you up for the challenge? <laughs> okay, that's a challenge. Okay. Um, I think the way I, I would link it is um, communities have found ways to create art and, and, and find ways of, of uh, manifesting justice through art. So in during the 1950s, uh, 60s, and in the UK in the 80s, um, Black Power Movement was a way, and what they do, <laughs> what they did was create um, murals, and they created art, and they created art forms through music and so on, um, and and theater to depict how communities have resisted various forms of um oppression. So I think that's how I I link it to art. Um, yeah, at least my interest in, in, in that sense. Well, that's the beauty about geography is that I could ask that same, give that same word to different people and I'd come up with different answers. But yeah, I used to use art in the broadest sense in my geography lessons all the time, whether it was painting, drawing, poetry, creative writing. Dra- I used to teach drama as well. So I brought drama into geography lessons quite a lot. And you mentioned Haiti. One of the things I used to do was do something called teacher in role where we took a, this tragic, but really, really poignant story about a rescue worker called Hector Mendez from Mexico, who went to Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. And so I was Hector and the kids had to ask me questions based on this true story. And yeah, I had the, um, and it was all about trying to bring empathy into things like earthquakes and volcanoes because kids mostly they love the explosions and stuff like that but they lose the humanity they lose the empathy so it was a way of bringing it back and no shame in saying i had the kids in tears because it wasn't a pleasant story it was a tragic story but it needed to be told so that's i thought i'd bring that because that brings everything together for you right but you now can come up with a word of your choice for our next guest so for our next guest, what would you like them to try and link to geography? Um, I think justice um, is the word that that I love it. I, I like and <laughs> and would try to get them to link. <laughs> They're going to nail geography. it. 
The person that I'm going to speak to next is a wonderful geography teacher who speaks to loads of people as well. She does it more than I do. And uh, yeah, I think she's going to nail that one. I think it'll be very interesting to hear what she comes up with. Um, so to finish off, do you have anyone to shout out to or a group of people or anybody? Um, I think the, the person that comes to mind is who's doing really great work in geography and, and contributing um, to black geographies. Um, there are two people, actually. One is Jovan Scott Lewis, who's a professor um, in the United States at UC Berkeley. And um, another person is Patricia Noxola, who is a geographer at University of Birmingham, who is doing amazing work around the Caribbean, around culture and so on. So that's, um, yeah, who I, I, I can think, I think about. That's a fantastic shout out. Pat's in our decolonizing geography group. So um, that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, she's a wonderful, wonderful person and uh, full respect for people like Pat and what she does for the community. And she uh, gave a talk at the Geographical Association Conference as well, just gone. Um, Kesson, how can people link up with you if they're interested in linking up to expand our geography community. So you've got Twitter, you've got a website, so you can give those a plug for us. Sure. Uh, my web, my website is kestonperry.com. Um, it needs updating a lot. Um, but, and my Twitter is, my handle is at radical underscore carib. So that's linking to the Caribbean region, radical underscore carib. Brilliant. Kesson, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and thank you so much for squeezing in some time because I know you've had such a busy day and uh, but I'll tell you what this is so so worth it and I'm so glad that you could join us today so thank you very much. No worries it's been my pleasure and lovely meeting you and I hope um, listeners enjoy this session. They certainly will, thank you. Thank you so much for listening, we hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep geogging.